Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, today we are in 1 Samuel, chapters 21 and 22. So let me lead us in prayer, uh, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have gathered us together uh, as your people uh, around your word, uh, and we pray that you speak to us through this passage uh, as we look at it together. Uh, we pray that you show us Christ, uh, that, uh, uh, and that you will help us to um, respond to him rightly, to align ourselves with him, uh, and live our lives uh, for him uh, and his kingdom. Uh, so we commit ourselves to you, and we ask that you work among us uh, this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever there is a political power struggle, people around need to decide who to align with. Now, some people make their decisions based on principles. Others try to work out who's going to win and then pick the winning side. Some people speculate that in one of our many political crises, some of our MPs might have given letters of support to more than one prime ministerial candidate so as to hedge their bets and make sure they have the favor of whoever gets the job. The result being that both sides thought they had the majority. In ancient times, who you align yourself with in a power struggle is not just about what posts you'll get or lose. It could be a matter of life or death. Let me take you back to one such time. We are now a thousand years before Christ. God had brought his people uh, into the promised land 400 years before this, but they had failed to trust him to rule them, and instead they tried to get their security from a king. Their first king, King Saul, started off well. But somewhere along the line, he became more interested in himself than in God. His religion became just one of externals, and he disobeyed the word of God. And God rejected him as king. God promised that he would appoint a king for himself. He told the prophet Samuel to anoint David, to pour oil over him uh, as a sign that God has chosen him to be king. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and so, uh, having left Saul. Uh, and so David was the anointed one, uh, the one whom in Hebrew is called Messiah, in Greek is called Christ. Right? He was catapulted to fame when he represented Israel against the Philistine giant Goliath. He defeated the Philistine. He saved God's people. There was the first of many military victories that God gave Israel through him. David was always loyal to Saul, but Saul began to get jealous of David. He heard the victory jingle, Saul has killed thousands and David tens of thousands, and became very, very jealous. He knew that David was a threat to his dynasty. Jonathan, his son, however, was just the opposite. He was quite willing to give up his throne for David, the anointed one. Saul wanted to kill David, but Jonathan warned him, and David had to run away. And that's where we pick up the story this week. David flees Gibeah, where Saul is. And his first stop when he flees is a place called Nob, only a few kilometers away. He doesn't have an army, just a few young men, no food, no weapons, fugitives with no means of support. Now, Nob is a city of priests, and the main priest there is a man named Ahimelech. Ahimelech is a little bit nervous about meeting David. But David assures him that he's quite legit. He's on a secret mission from Saul, he says, and he asks for some food. Ahimelech doesn't have any ordinary bread, just special temple bread, a bread that is supposed to be eaten only by the priests. It was part of God's provision for those who are serving him. Ahimelech checks that David and his men are ceremonially clean, and then he gives the bread to David, and David accepts it. 
we know that this is okay because Jesus has told us that. David is God's anointed one. He is in God's service. This is God's provision for him. But he does notice someone there whose presence makes him feel uneasy. This is Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. David dismisses the man from his mind and asks the priest for weapons. And Ahimelech gives him the sword of Goliath. So David takes the food and he takes the weapons and off he goes. Now where he goes is a little bit surprising. He goes to Gath, the Philistine town where Goliath came from. And so we wonder what's happening here. Now he's under tremendous stress. He's a fugitive from the king because of God's plans for him. So we don't want to rush into judgment too quickly. But he's lied to the priest. Now he's armed with Goliath's sword. And he's moving to Goliath's hometown. The optics don't look so great. David might be pointing forward to Jesus, but he's not Jesus. He's still a sinful person like us. And we wonder, is he really on the right path here? Or has he made a wrong turn? Well, if David thinks he can slip into Geth unrecognized, he's wrong. In fact, in chapter 21, verse 11, they recognize him as the king of Israel way before the Israelites do. They say, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in the dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They take him to Achish, their king. Now David's scared. He's been caught by the Philistines. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. And so he acts as if he's mad. He pretends to be insane. He's scratching at the door, he's dribbling through his beard. And, and when King sees him, he goes, why do you bring this bad man into my house? Get him out of here. And David escapes. David was beginning to go in the wrong direction. But the plans that he made didn't come to pass. The fact that he was recognized meant that he had to back out of them. He faced the shame of having to pretend to be insane, but not only did he escape with his life, but he was forced to go in a better direction. God had chosen him to be his anointed one. He was a man after God's own heart. And God would not only save him from Saul and the Philistines, but from himself. Friends, there are times in our lives when the plans that we make don't work out. Things don't happen the way we think they're meant to. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we're doing something sinful like this. But if we are God's chosen people, we can trust that nothing escapes his plans. God's plan for us is that we will become like Christ, change into his image. And even when things don't go our way, we can trust that God is working in all of it for our good. Even as God was fulfilling his plans for David, when David's plans weren't working. David goes then to a place, now we're beginning of chapter 22, called the Cave of Adullam. Now it's an important place for David. This is a key point in his life. And these few verses are also the turning point in this narrative. Now, I don't have time to explain it now, but if you look at the structure of the passage in the sermon outline, you'll see why. David's family join him at this stronghold in this cave. They, they become fugitives as well. Because Saul will certainly be after them. You know, his parents are old, his whole family, now they just lose everything because of David. And they become refugees. It must have been hard for David. But it's not just the family who join him. 
Over time, a whole lot of others who are marginalized or dissatisfied with their lot in Israel, they also come to him. They are described in verse 2 as everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul. David becomes their leader. And now he has a small army of 400 merry men who have aligned themselves to him. We will read some of their uh, about some of these men and their heroic exploits in other parts of Scripture. And they remind us a little bit of the disciples of Jesus, a motley crew, the kinds of men who would never be shortlisted for the Israelite council of eminent people, but who loved Jesus and followed him. And through them, we have received the word of God, even today. And it's not just David's men and the disciples of Jesus who are like that. The Apostle Paul, being very honest with the Corinthian church, said this to them. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But then he said, God chose you anyway, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. David's men were nothing in themselves. They were only heroes because they were with David. And we too are nothing in ourselves. It's because we are in Christ, because we are with him. We do things and we fight battles that are of eternal significance. Now the next thing David worries about is his parents. You remember his father was Jesse, his grandfather was Obed, and you remember who Obed's mother was? Ruth, the Moabitess. So David takes his family for refuge to Moab and does some deal with the Moabite king who agrees to look after them. Now that's a little bit different from going to the Philistines. The Philistines were the, the people of the land, the enemies of God's people who were under God's judgment and were uh, under God meant to be exterminated. The Moabites were just another nation. The descendants of Lot, sometimes enemies of Israel, not always. And notice how David deals with his parents. He makes sure they're looked after. That's, that's his responsibility. But he doesn't let thoughts of their comfort stop him from the task that God has given him. He is the anointed one, and the anointed one suffers, and so do members of his family. He doesn't go, oh, well, I don't want to get my family into trouble, so I'll just stop being the anointed one. Right? Uh, they would have been a lot better off if he had just stayed looking after the sheep. He makes sure they're looked after while not neglecting the role that God gave him. Jesus did the same with his mom, didn't he? Made sure she was cared for. On the cross, he told John to look after her. But he didn't avoid the cross because it would cause his mom too much pain. And friends, that's the same for us. We have an obligation to look after our parents. Jesus was very critical of those who use religion as an excuse not to care for their parents. But he was also very clear that our ultimate loyalty must be to him. To love our parents, to make sure they're looked after. But Jesus is the king of our lives. And if Jesus is king, there may be times that what he wants for us and what our parents want for us is different. And sometimes, like David, like Jesus, our families will be disadvantaged, at least from a worldly point of view. We have an obligation to look after our parents, and our children for that matter. But their aspirations cannot determine our lives. And so, having fulfilled his parental obligations, David goes back to the cave. Now, this cave was a stronghold for David and his men. They were relatively safe from Saul, and they were growing in number. That is 
pretty good. But God doesn't want David hiding there anymore. He wants his king back in Judah. And so the prophet speaks to him in verse 5. Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so David does that, even though it's much more dangerous. He is God's anointed one. He's the leader. But unlike Saul, he does what the prophet says. And that's the pattern that he will follow when he becomes king. He will rule his people under the word of God. In other nations, the king is the absolute ruler. But in Israel, that was not meant to be the case. The king must obey the word of God. And David does that. And we know now that he's back on track. And friends, the word of God must always be the authority among God's people. We now have the word of God written down in the scriptures. Even Jesus, the word himself, fulfilled the scriptures. And so those who lead God's people under him are to lead God's people under God's word. We are never to stand over and above God's word. We stand under it. We are not to change it, judge it, or ignore it, but to humbly submit to it. God's anointed one submitted to his word. Meanwhile, back at Gibeah, Saul is sitting under a tamarisk tree, spear in hand, with his servants all around him. Now, if you wonder why the writer is telling us what, what kind of tree he's sitting under, well, we find out only at the end of the book. But anyway, Saul is very angry, and he's shouting at his men. Here's what he says. Uh, we're in verse, um, uh, verse 7. He says this. Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up his servants against me to lie in wait as at this day. All right, he's, he's quite insecure, isn't he? Right? He's accusing his men of treachery, of aligning himself with David uh, instead of with him. Well, one of the guys there is Doeg the Edomite. Uh, and Doeg responds. He says in verse 9, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And so the king quickly sends for Ahimelech and his whole family, all the priests were at Nob, come immediately to Gibeah. And they make the trip. And Saul says to Ahimelech, Why have you conspired against me? Verse 13. You and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day. Ahimelech defends David and defends himself. He says, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, the captain over your bodyguard, ordered in your house? Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Saul's not impressed. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And Saul gives orders to his men to kill God's priests. 
But none of Saul's men dare to kill the priests of the Most High God. They just stand there. The priests just stand there. And Saul has a chance to change his mind. Would he do that? He turns to Doeg the Edomite, verse 18. You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite kills them all. And Saul is now responsible for the death of 85 of God's priests. Could it get worse? Well, it does. In the very next verse, Doeg the Edomite goes back to Nob, presumably with his men. And there in Nob, the city of priests, in verse 19, he put to the sword both man and woman, children and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Doeg the Edomite does to an Israelite town what Israel was only meant to do to God's enemies in the land and only then as an executioner in God's judgment upon them. And Saul, the king of Israel, was responsible for the massacre of his own people. The only one who escapes is one of Ahimelech's sons, a man called Abiathar, who flees to David and enters into his service. And so now, God's anointed king, David, has in his band not only a prophet, Gad, but also a priest. So, where do we fit into this story? If you've been coming to the online church for the past few weeks and you've been listening to sermons, you will know that David himself points forward to Christ. Right? He is the anointed one, the one God chose to be king, but he's not the perfect Messiah, only Jesus is. Because if David was the perfect Messiah, then we wouldn't need Jesus, would we? And yet he is still the man after God's own heart. He saved his people from their enemies to be their king, anointed king in secret, suffered first before receiving his kingdom. Right? His life is a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus, even though it's imperfect. And while there are many things that we can and we have applied to our daily lives from David, as he points forward to Christ, because we are seeking to follow Christ, the most direct connection for us to this story is not through David, but through the people who relate to him. Because like the people in the story, we have a relationship with God's anointed king. So let's think for a moment about the people who relate to David. Or to start with, there are the priests at Nob. They are the people who helped David. Now, David deceived them, something Jesus would never do to us. No deceit was found in his mouth, the Bible says. But the fact that the priests at Nob helped David, God's chosen king, meant they were massacred for it. You see, aligning yourself with the anointed one doesn't always mean that things will go your way. Uh, yes, he'll be king in the end. But in the meantime, those who oppose him were terribly violent against those who helped him along the way. And that's the same with us, isn't it? Those who align themselves with Jesus are often attacked by those who hate him. Thousands of people are killed each year across the world for their faith in Jesus. Many, many more suffer abuse and rejection and marginalization and discrimination and persecution that might even be some of you. Don't be surprised. The evil one hates those who help the cause of the king. But I tell you what, on the day of judgment, I'd much rather be one of those massacred priests than Doeg the Edomite. I cannot begin to imagine the awful punishment that awaits him for the evil that he did 
on that day. The priesthood at Nob reminds us that helping the king might be costly. Another person who related to David was the Philistine king of Gath. He was an enemy of God's people. His own people recognized David as the future king of Israel, but all he could see when he looked at David was a madman, someone not worth bothering about. And you know, sometimes people see Jesus that way. They don't see his glory, they just see his apparent weakness. They look at his disgrace in his death on the cross. They can't imagine that this is the one that God has chosen to rule the world. Because they don't see that his death on the cross was to pay the penalty of our sins so we can be reconciled to God and, and rescued from the clutches of the devil. And what looks like foolishness is actually the wisdom of God. At the cross, the glory of Jesus is hidden. But if you are like the king of Gath, then think again. It would be a mistake to underestimate God's anointed one. And then we have Saul and his men. Saul, we know, is on a downward spiral. He disobeyed God's word. He hated David. And now he has caused the massacre of God's people and priests. David might have taken a couple of steps down the wrong path, but God brought him back. He listened to God's word. Saul went down that wrong path a long time ago, and he never turned back. He's just getting deeper and deeper into sin. And friend, if you're going down the wrong road today, you can still turn back. It's not too late. God can forgive you because Jesus died for you. He can give you a fresh start with him. But you have to stop, you have to repent, you have to turn around and turn back to him. And you have to be willing to listen to his word in the scriptures as David listened to the prophet. Don't end up like Saul. And don't be like Saul's men. Some of them might have been decent people, like the ones who couldn't bring themselves to kill the priests. Got to give them credit for that. Some of them might have been dreadful people, like Doeg the Edomite, who massacred God's priests and people. But they were all on the wrong side. They were aligned with Saul against the true Messiah. Do not be in opposition to Jesus, no matter how decent or otherwise you may be. Saul's men remind us not to follow those who oppose God's true king. And then finally, we've got the crew at Agilum, the guys who became David's men. Disaffected with life under the old regime, wanting something better, and for their own reasons, good or bad, decided to align themselves with David. They were an odd assortment of people. People that society thought of as no hopers. People with difficulties, people with issues, people who couldn't fit in, people who were bitter. Yet under the leadership of the Anointed One, they made a difference. They would later defeat the Philistines with him, saving towns in Israel. They would suffer with him, and they would later be with him in his kingdom. He would be their captain. They would be his loyal friends. And brothers and sisters, many of us here are like that. We've got all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues, but that does not stop us from loving and serving the king. does not bar us from his army. He warns us that suffering is likely, but he loves us and uses us for his kingdom. 
we stand with him as his people. And as a team together with him, we work with him to save God's people as the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. And one day we will join him in glory. David's men reminds us that though the world might not think much of us, we are with the Lord, and that's what counts. So friends, let me ask you today, will you help Jesus and his messengers as the priests helped David, even if that is risky and it costs? Will you underestimate Jesus and despise him like the king of Gath despised David? Will you attack those who help his cause like Doeg the Edomite attacked the priests and their families? Or will you join his band of misfits and outcasts? My friends, align yourselves with Jesus and with him you won't just change the world, you will help him save his people for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our King. Thank you that he always walked in your paths, never moved in the wrong direction. Please guard us as we seek to follow him. Please let us never let us wander away from you or grow in the in the wrong in the wrong direction. Please keep us from that. Even if it means disrupting our plans and causing us temporary stress and disappointment. We thank you for our families. Please help us to love them and fulfill our responsibilities to them. But please help us also to seek first your kingdom. We know that the world still opposes your anointed king. Give us boldness, we pray, to stand with those who are oppressed for following Jesus, even if that is risky to us. And Father, we thank you that despite our many weaknesses, you have drawn us to your Son. Thank you that we can be with him, that he loves us and leads us. May we always stand alongside him, in difficulty now, and in glory when he returns. We ask this, Lord, in his name. Amen.